0: and search for themodernwest.org and find the donate button. It doesn't matter how much you commit to, $5 or $100. It just matters that you show us that you want us to keep telling these stories. My recommendation? Pause this episode and do it real quick before you forget at themodernwest.org. From Wyoming Public Media and PRX, this is the Modern West, exploring the evolving identity of the American West. I'm Melody Edwards. We're working away on future episodes of Mending the Hope. But we felt like it was important to share some of the conversations we've been having behind the scenes. As a white woman reporting on Indian Country, I always knew I would need extra guidance putting this season together. Like I said at the top of the season, I fully recognize I have innate biases when it comes to the history of the American West. We all do. Nothing wrong with that, but it did mean some extra legwork if I was going to do this right. My hope was to find someone willing to call me out, if necessary, and point me in the right direction as a reporter. So I reached out to a really great guy I know, Dr. Jeff Means, a Native American history professor at the University of Wyoming. As I've been producing this podcast, I've been meeting with Jeff in person to get his feedback on some of the hard topics that have come up along the way. He's a busy person and a dad, but he still made time to come into the Wyoming Public Radio studios and think big picture with me about this history and about how best to tell this story. He's funny, often irreverent, just the right person to grab a dark and problematic history by the horns. It seemed like a good time to share with you some of the -the behind-the-scenes conversations I've been having now that we've heard the tale of the Plains Indian Wars. First off, a little backstory. Jeff grew up in Rock Springs and Phoenix with his white mom, but he always knew he was Lakota. In fact, he's related to the renowned American Indian movement leader, Russell Means. But his mom wasn't super supportive of him exploring that side of himself. His dad even had to sneak him away to visit his family on the Pine Ridge Reservation. He starts off telling me that's how he began recognizing a giant discrepancy between the history he was learning in school and the history that he was learning from his family.
1: You know, when I was a kid, I got the same kind of manifest destiny Mm is great. Native Americans inevitably were going to lose, but they helped us steal ourselves in in that forge, and that fire that made us great, right? Um, The Native American narrative of history is muted, and uh, there's an attempt to completely eradicate it and replace it with a narrative that comes from the dominant, conquering culture, okay? But that's when you find out that the Native voice has been purposely muted Then you start to realize, oh, okay, that's why people get so upset in this country when, like, with the Dakota Access Pipeline stuff. Anytime Native Americans raise their hand, raise their voice, and say, "We're still here, and we don't like what's going on over here," America throws a conniption fit. Mm -hmm. Okay, because it's a threat to that identity that has been cultivated within American classrooms and culture that America is perfect. Yeah, um, the greatest nation ever.
0: just to sort of bring us up to the Plains Indian Wars. Mm -hmm. That had been going on for hundreds of years. Hundreds, yeah. Over and over again, there was this sort of uh, resistance by the indigenous peoples and then, you know, and and a willingness to find a peaceful solution, which would be then just kind of snubbed out violently, usually. And so then it gets to – it reaches to the middle of the country. It was kind of happening – from the East Coast and the West Coast, and then we just kind of closed into uh, the plains and the Rocky Mountain region. Is that a fair yeah? Assessment?
1: I mean, it it was a, and it's kind of a strange history that the United States had with indigenous cultures. Um, originally, the idea of assimilation was, you know, seen as okay. They'll eventually just join our American republic and be happy citizens of it just like other uh, immigrants and so on and so forth. But they didn't understand that Native Americans already had their own national identity. They already had their their own religion and and so on. Then efforts became more and more uh, stringent in forcing assimilation, either that or simply moving them out of the way. This is ethnic cleansing, classic ethnic cleansing, which is, you know, We don't necessarily want to kill y'all, but you have to leave because we want your land. Um, And so west they go and it had taken, you know, this is 1848. (laughs) It had taken 200 years to go from the east coast to the Mississippi. And it literally takes, uh, you know, hardly any years at all to go all the way to California. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden we're in a war with Mexico. The United States expands. Settlers are all the way to the west coast by 49, 50, et cetera. And now what do you do? And this is when the nations on the plains are in a different situation than the other nations. They can't. You can't relocate them west, right? Um, so what do you do with them? And this is where the treaty system and reservations begins to become part of American policy. Uh, and uh, that will allow for American expansion westward.
0: I interviewed a, a historian on Red Cloud. He had written a book about Red Cloud. And we got into a conversation about – the idea of genocide, he wanted to be pretty picky about that term. And he did not feel that what the United States did, what their you know relationship with tribes was, was not technically genocide because there was never a U.S. policy that said, let's exterminate all of these people. And I can see this whole effort to use these kind of settler militias Um, To kind of do that work, kind of you can you can see that the U.S. government was sort of hiding behind that in a way and that that was a way in which they could commit this ethnic cleansing, as you called it, without ever actually passing a policy. Although it does sound like there was some policies
1: that were there were policies that tried to culturally end Native American culture. Yeah, I mean, just just, you know, you're going to outlaw their religion. You're going to outlaw, you know, the fact that they have. Uh, dances or medicine men things like that those become illegal right but a cultural
0: genocide yeah sorts. that mm-hmm. it, it,
1: absolutely cultural genocide mm-hmm. i don't think anybody question because that's the entire goal but again it's simply because they believe that what they're doing is for the benefit of the people they're doing it to which is you know fundamentally ironic but we're it's the white man's burden classic white man's burden we're going to raise you up whether you know you need to be or not and whether you want to or not and you'll be better off for it okay this whole kind of idea
0: do this it's
1: terrible yeah we Uh, wish you just voluntarily become like us Mm -hmm. but you can't genocide um has kind of been a term that is defined by one episode of it and that is the nazi holocaust of the Jews and others in Europe. Now, when people think of genocide, that's almost universally what they think of is this industrial policy and effort of an an industrial nation to exterminate a specific group, okay? Where you can see that the, you know, this is the prescribed policy of the nation. And what they don't understand is that's, uh, you know, the the unicorn of of genocide. Okay, most genocide doesn't happen that way. Most genocide is not a public policy of any nation. Um, It's just simply what they do and what everybody knows.
0: And then, you know, I think the brutality, especially of Sand Creek Massacre. I mean, that kind of uh, mutilation was something that had been used previously. It seems like that was the first time it was really used in that way. In this region,
1: yeah, um, that, that
0: seemed like that was one of the reasons that it, the rest of the Plains Indian Wars kind of rolled out the way way it did.
1: Yeah, and this is one of the greatest ironies of the spread of civilization against the savage is the savage brutality the civilization carries out on these uh, people. Yeah, the, I mean it was horrific the things that they did to the uh, native bodies, and they did so because again. They're just Indians.
0: Maybe you can guide me here. This is one of the reasons I wanted to invite you to do this with me is, you know, this part of the story of Sand Creek, What do, what is your advice to me in terms of telling that story? Is it is it useful to go ahead and let people hear that part of the story or is it uh, gratuitous? <sighs>
1: I suppose it would depend on your audience, obviously. Mm -hmm. It's far too gratuitous for children. Yes. Okay. Um, (laughs) But no, I think that it's okay to tell those kinds of stories and details because they're important to understand why the natives have the perspective that they do historically about the United States, okay, which is completely different than what most Americans would think. Most Americans have no idea. That there is even a Native American perspective, let alone understand it. Um, they don't think in that kind of context because they don't think about Native Americans anymore. Um, they're not taught about them in school. And unless you live near them, they're not a part of your life. Right. So, yeah, I would say tell the stories okay. and the gory details.
0: OK. We have these ideas. Of, you know, you watch the old westerns and stuff, and it's always the Indians are the bad guys. And and, you know, like after Sand Creek, there's a lot of pillaging that happens. But it, you know, when you look at it from the point of view of the Cheyenne and the Arapaho who had just gone through Sand Creek, they had nothing. They had no teepees for shelter in the middle of winter. they they had no food. They had no, nothing. So this pillaging was just almost a survival strategy.
1: Partly, yeah. I mean, a lot of it, mm-hmm. don't get me wrong. I mean, they're mad, okay? Yeah, because, there's again, revenge happening. Yeah, mm-hmm. because again, these were peace chiefs. And so the idea of peace is gone. So therefore, if it's going to be war, and clearly the United States has declared war, then, okay, you know, we're going to take it out on you while we gain some supplies and, and move north and, and try and find shelter with our friends. Whereas... You know, I mean, from the US perspective, again, these are all unprovoked, horrible, you know, attacks on civilians. And so it's just, it's laughable now to me. But I mean, back then, this is what you would hear reported in the newspapers.
0: It was, it, was, it was sort of spin and like reframing uh, the story so that it, you get to be the good guy. And if you isolate each incident and say this was unprovoked and, it, and you don't connect the dots back to Sand Creek, then it looks like – then you can turn somebody into the bad guy. You can turn the tribes into the bad guy.
1: Um, they need to be gone. Um, this is ethnic cleansing uh, at its finest. We want this land and you can either leave – or we can kill you, or you know, you can assimilate one way or the other. And it's that process that prevents Native Americans from really getting any kind of sympathy regionally and so on. Whereas back east, you actually find some – there are some instances where people in the United States are very sympathetic to the native cause Mm -hmm. because they've had enough time and distance away from what they experienced to say, oh, this was horrible. And uh,
0: So you're saying like some of the the folks out east are watching what's going out out here on the Plains Indian Wars. They started to have –
1: Yeah, and they were sympathetic Mm -hmm. toward the native nations to a certain degree. All of them want them assimilated. Let, let, I mean, there's nobody out there going, "Let them live," as the, how, <laughs> how they always have, right? right? But the violence is what they abhor. They want, uh, you know, a peaceful Western, you know, expansion, and they want the Native Americans to be educated and Christianized, and you know, basically welcomed into the warm embrace of the United States at a time when racism is reaching its highest point. So it's kind of counterintuitive.
0: When I went and visited with Donovan. One thing he talked about was that atrocities and mutilations and stuff was not something that was traditional in any way uh, in warfare pre-European contact, and that it really was still, even after Sand Creek, it was still pretty rare. And it was, if it was anything, it was usually kind of a spiritual, something sort of symbolic.
1: And again, Native nations are so vastly different when it comes to right. um, these kinds of practices. Mm-hmm. So there, you can't kind of say ones like the other mm-hmm. at all. Um, but almost universally, the kinds of things that were done were done for very specific spiritual reasons. Even, you know, the mutilation of bodies is because, you you know, there was a belief in many Native nations that you didn't just fight in this life, that when you died, you become a warrior on the other side. And so in a way to prevent that person from becoming a, a great warrior on the other side would be to take his eyes out. Because then he would be blind or to cut his hands off. Now, all of these things would be seen from an American perspective as barbaric mutilations that there's no reason for them except pure savagery, right? And that's just because they fail to understand the the spiritual essence of the native perspective on the afterlife and this life and everything else. So it's really fascinating.
0: Yeah. Um, one of the ones that I'm really finding to be problematic in terms of how I'm going to be able to tell this story is the issue of scalping. Because we have this, yet again, a sort of a stereotype of that's something that Native Americans did. And we don't think of the fact that actually white people were doing a heck of a lot of scalping. There's a possibility that it actually was a practice that came over from Europe.
1: Oh, yeah. They had bounties on Native scalps as far back as the 1630s man colonial new england i mean you literally you can get paid uh, right they were know, getting paid pounds. like white
0: people were getting paid,
1: paid for scalps yes exactly whereas that
0: was not necessarily that wasn't No African. for
1: native americans it's uh taking a scalp is obviously personal power and prestige you're diminishing your enemy at the same time that you're gaining power for yourself
0: am i going to end up Reinforcing some of those stereotypes about scalping,
1: uh, if yeah. there isn't
0: a, if I, if I'm not balancing it out, right? Do you know what with I mean? A, with
1: a with a more comprehensive understanding yeah. of what this meant for Native Americans, right? I mean, because you could scalp somebody that you hadn't killed that somebody else had killed, and you'd still gained power because, again, even a dead enemy is somebody to be feared, right? I mean, because they're very dangerous in the next life and so on. So counting coup on a dead person was, again, uh, something that was considered courageous.
0: And you mentioned uh, counting coup. Can you tell me a little bit more about it? And it's an interesting counter example to scalping because it is it's like this brave act, but no one's injured.
1: Right, because it's considered far more courageous to count coup than it is to kill somebody. Basically, what counting coup is, is you is riding up to an armed enemy who's trying to kill you and touching them with your coup stick or your bow or something like this, and then riding away. And everybody within the battle knows the significance of that. You have just gained tremendous prestige and power and you have diminished your enemy. To get counted coup on was humiliating, (laughs) okay? So to to do this with an armed enemy is considered braver because you really have, I mean, you're oftentimes hand-to-hand anyway, right? But I mean, to go up and do this with no intention of killing them, when you think about it, it'd be far more easy to just run your spear through them or pull your bow back and and put an arrow right in the middle of them. Okay. I mean, that's, if you're 10 feet away, do that. Right. I'm going to go up to two or three feet, smack the guy with a stick and then right away. Okay. And the part of this is also the native belief in warfare, especially before contact had never been about killing as many people as you can. It was simply demonstrating your power over them.
0: One of the things that I thought I really would want to talk to you about is the spiritual aspects of this history. How to incorporate those into the storytelling, it seems sometimes it's very integral. Like for instance, um, Sitting Bull's vision.
1: There were all kinds of visions that really shaped and defined Native nations' strategies about how they were going to deal with the United States. I mean. Plenty Horses of the Crow had that, his vision of you know, becoming peaceful with the United States. And
0: Can you tell me a little bit more of that, about that one? Cause I haven't come across that one.
1: Um, it's, it, you know, the Crow were kind of between a hammer and an anvil at the time. They were between the Blackfeet and the Lakota and they were really struggling had been very powerful, but they were so, they created these large horse herds that were very attractive. So it made them a target, unfortunately. And so when Plenty Horses had this vision, it was right when white people were starting to really come out on the Oregon Trail and migrate in in this direction. And he had a vision in which he saw his nation transformed by an alliance with white people. And the Crow became very much one of the best groups of scouts and allies that United States government had during the Plains War. So, and they benefited from it. They got a, a – the Crow Reservation is still in Montana. They weren't forced to uh, leave to go to Oklahoma, that kind of thing. So, you know, th- there's all these anecdotal stories of these kinds of spiritual events taking place in Native America, you know, across the centuries. And, and for the most part, historians have noted them, but they really don't place them in a central – of role within the within the context of the story, it's more of an interesting anecdote kind of a thing because, quite frankly, they don't believe in that. Sitting Bull had this vision and you know predicted this great defeat for the United States and so on. Or if they do, it's kind of like ah, uh, you know, I mean, whatever. <laughs> and so you're removing the native narrative and, and dismissing it and and minimizing it, right? Because you want to replace it with the dominant culture narrative.
0: And it seems like, especially since that's sort of the project that we've undertaken here with this podcast, to retell this history that has often been chopped up into bits and pieces of this battle here or this battle there without connective tissue, I can't like just minimalize those pieces of the story, that spiritual part of the story. But it seems like I could also get myself in trouble if I take on that those stories in, in maybe In sensitive ways.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, (laughs) you do have to approach them uh, very much from a a position of either scholarship or connection and permission and with Native nations or something in a way in which you're openly and honestly seeking the story and the truth and so on, you know, Um, as opposed to, you know, kind of a period search for. Sound bites and clicks um, by saying things that just sound cool, um, but actually right. can be offensive, and so on and so forth. But I think any honest um, search for the truth is going to be welcomed as opposed to condemned.
0: You, and you brought up a really interesting something else that I wanted to talk to you about, which was the role of the crow in this story. You, you've kind of explored it a little bit, but the and, and the Shoshone were also kind of ended up kind of taking on the role of scouts or um, kind of helping out it, it's an interesting part of the story is the the crow and, and the Shoshone especially in this in this tale
1: well I mean they very wisely their mm-hmm. leaders chose an alliance with the United States as the lesser of two evils here and they did
0: what they had to they do, did what of- they had
1: to do because according to the Treaty of 1868 yes that area in Montana was technically, territory. Yeah, it was very smart on their part to get the United States to come in and lend hand, as it were.
0: Anything else that I didn't think of to talk about that in terms of this. I this think your listeners piece. would
1: be interested to know mm-hmm. that the Pawnee, the Crow, and the Shoshone are all evil. <laughs> and uh <laughs> <laughs> and that's just the way it is um okay. no it's funny uh ac- it's and it's it's you know that's a very academic uh-huh. and very objective viewpoint <laughs> as a scholar <laughs> my neutral viewpoint you on, on these nations uh-huh. so um, your doctor
0: status I yeah okay. and
1: plus my grandma told me that you know oh you can't trust the crow or the pony okay all right so your
0: grandma told you uh, yes
1: yes and so i can't remember we were having a discussion about something and she just offhandedly said you can't trust either one of those (laughs) (laughs) it was very much just a matter of fact yeah so no obviously this will not make your (laughs) your podcast but
0: you never know don't do that to me
1: <laughs> I have some very good friends who are Bonnie and Crow. And they're they're actually great people. Yes. Um, well, and and that's but we like that's to kinda, tease each other. Well,
0: that's I I, I do wonder just because I and I noticed this that Donovan also he's also Lakota and he had uh, he had some choice words about the the Crow and the, the fact that you know like the the buses that were offering tours around the Battle of Little Bighorn they were getting to tell the story. Even though it was, he felt that it was like his ancestors' story, story,
1: not the crow's story, right? Right. But
0: so, but he, you know, and so he was, he was teasing in a very similar sort of way. But nowadays, that the, this is a joke more than
1: anything. <sighs> yeah, uh, not not universally all the time, really. But no, oh no, there's still hard feelings uh, okay. uh, that can exist mm. that are real, run, run, run deep. deep, and so it depends on the person, depends on the group, etc. Sometimes you got to have eyes in the back of your head and so on at powwows because Uh you never know who's Uh going to decide that, you know what, I got a bone to pick with you about something that happened 150 years ago. (laughs) But again, that speaks to the natives' perspective on time. Mm -hmm. I mean, just because, you know, your people killed a bunch of my people, and yes, it was in 1820, I'm still kind of – Harsh about it, <laughs> okay? I'm salty yeah. about that, yeah. right? So you know, I'm going to give you a earful, right? <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah, it gets personal.
1: It gets personal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, um, that,
0: and I think that's exactly what we're trying to do with this podcast, right? Is is show how this history is very fresh still. It's it's not distant history. Whereas I think that when we learn it in elementary school history class or something, it feels like it's so distant, right? But In Indian country, that's not the case.
1: No, and it's very real. I mean, the Treaty of 1868 is a living, breathing document for us. So the United States can keep saying, well, that was 150 years ago. Get over it. No. I don't think I will. (laughs) (laughs) I think that I'm going to keep pointing this out to you Mm -hmm. no matter how many years are between it and, and now. So...
0: That was University of Wyoming professor Jeff Means. We'll hear from Jeff again later in the season two. And don't worry, I got his permission to use that last part about picking a bone with the Pawnee and the Crow. Next time on Mending the Hoop, the US government came up with a devious way to suppress the Plains tribes without guns or battle, by taking away the children and shipping them to faraway boarding schools. These boarding schools left deep scars that still affect Native Americans today. And a lot of the elders would say, our kids were being held hostage. Because how do you break a family? How do you break a tribe? Did you take their kids away? That's their future, their language, their culture, everything, because you're passing on that legacy of who you are through these children. Now though, tribes like the Northern Arapaho are reclaiming these children's remains and burying them at home as a way towards healing just one of many ways that tribes are mending the hoop. I'm Melody Edwards. Our story editor is Ojibwe playwright Marty Strenzelwilk. Noah Greenspan is the assistant producer and line editor. Our sound designer is Charles Fournier. Luke Forring is the digital producer. Thanks also for help from Sarah Ann Leverett, Tina Unger-McGee, Emily Jankowski, and Courtney Blackmer-Reynolds. To see Anna Costra's original photography for this season, go to our website, at themodernwest.org. Music by Apache musician Andrew Vasquez and Tlingit musician Caskey Russell. Our theme song is by Screen Door Porch. This podcast was produced on the University of Wyoming campus that occupies the ancestral and traditional lands of the Cheyenne, Arapaho, Crow, and Shoshone Indigenous peoples, along with other Native tribes who call the Great Basin and Rocky Mountain region home. We recognize, support, and advocate alongside Indigenous individuals and communities who live here now and with those forcibly removed from their homelands. We always love hearing from our listeners. Email us at modernwestpod at gmail.com. The Modern West is a production of PRX and Wyoming Public Media. One of our goals is to get a dialogue flowing about the stories that we're telling. We're hoping that you'll join the conversation. So connect with us on social media and let us know what your thoughts are, whether you agree with what you're hearing or not. We're at Modern West Pod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. That's Modern West Pod.